today on Peace Talks Radio, a glimpse at the ongoing history of conscientious objection to military service, even in the all-volunteer U.S. military service of the 21st century. Every year, there are hundreds of cases of conscientious objectors, uh, folks who have voluntarily joined the military, and then in the course of their service, they have a crisis of conscience and they realize that they can no longer uh, be part of the armed forces. We'll hear from Maria Santelli, executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, as well as two former service members who were granted conscientious objector status as their personal philosophies against killing evolved to a critical point after they'd volunteered for the armed services. He played this video for me of about seven or eight men being annihilated by a drone. And something sort of tarnished my soul. Two conscientious objector cases today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or how we reduce conflict between ourselves and others at home, in the workplace, at school, in our neighborhoods, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also profile the great peacemakers doing the work today or throughout history. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today along with Carol Boss. And today we look at conscientious objection to military service, which in the United States, some presume doesn't come up very often in this era of an all-volunteer service. If one had a philosophical or religious objection to military service, why would they volunteer in the first place? Well, the modern CO application, as it's called, comes from those who sign up for the service, but come to their conscientious objection during their tour of duty. Like Dante Cersei, who told us he joined the Navy in 2010 to become a linguist, thinking he could help pay off his student loans and make a contribution without having to serve on the front lines. He told our Carol boss that he hadn't really thought much about war before enlisting, but lots of things changed over the course of a couple of years. The job that I did in in the Navy was one in which I utilized the foreign language that I was trained in for various missions. There was one day that I went to work when I was working in this uh, for this particular mission in this uh, drone shop in which one of the one of my coworkers the civilian contractor calls me over to his computer and he points something out to me and I you know ask him what it is and he says you know these are my kills and I thought my kills you know we're in a we're in an air conditioned you know computer warehouse you know what are you know what are we where would there be kills from and he played this video for me of about seven or eight men being annihilated by a drone. And there was just something in the look in his eye. It was very icy, you know, without conscience, without remorse. And the Carol, the only way that I can describe it is there something that sort of tarnished my soul when I saw the place that I was working in and saw that this man was sitting next to me. And this was, you know, this was what he, this was what he was doing, which meant that that was what I was doing as well. After I saw that video, I contacted center for conscience and war. Um, I had played with the idea a lot of submitting a conscientious objector packet. But after I saw that video, I said to myself, I 
do not want that blood on my hands. I do not want to participate in any sort of system that perpetuates this type of killing, indiscriminate killing of people that we, you know, I just didn't feel as though it was right for me to participate in playing judge and jury for, for these people that I, I had no idea about. So one doesn't have to hold a gun. One doesn't have to be five miles above dropping bombs to kill someone. No, if if anything, I felt even more guilty for the position that I was in because of the fact that I was safe. I was able to see them, but they couldn't see me. And there was something about that that just while it obviously it it is it's ideal to be safe, you know, you don't you don't want to be attacked either, but it didn't make it better. It it made me feel worse in a way. Our our technology today provides us that safety, that individual safety in which we no longer have to physically participate. Some of us don't. Um, I was fortunate in the fact that I did not physically have to participate. You know, I knew people that did and I, and I heard their stories and I was able to empathize with them, but I was not able to personally relate. But then with my own realization of, of, and you know, my own consciousness and my own education about war, I understood that no, it, it doesn't have to be a gun. There are much more efficient ways to do it, but being more efficient doesn't make it, doesn't make it better. And it wasn't something that I wanted to continue to be a part of. Seeing the kill was just the final chapter of Dante Circe's evolution to being a conscientious objector during his term in the Navy. And we'll hear more about that in just a few minutes. For anyone born before 1960, there may be a vivid memory about controversies that arose around the conscription into the armed services, especially during the U.S. involvement in the war in Vietnam. Until the U.S. draft ended in 1973, news reports throughout the Vietnam era often included protest events that featured war resistors burning draft cards, applying for college deferments, fleeing to Canada, serving prison terms, and in some cases making a case that fighting in a war was against their religious or philosophical beliefs and applying for conscientious objector status. There's a long history of this, going at least as far back as the 1500s when Dutch Mennonites were granted conscientious objection status, excusing them from military service in exchange for a fee. In the 1700s, Quakers were excused from fighting in British wars. And conscientious objection has been allowed in the United States since its founding. But for most of its history in the U.S., that status required a monetary trade, a commitment to alternative service, and sometimes involved harassment or imprisonment. Various reports say two to 4,000 men refused to serve in World War I. As many as 70,000 applied for CO status in World War II, some accepting non-combat assignments or civil service, but some went to prison. The number of CO applicants by the Vietnam War skyrocketed to 300,000, 170,000 of which were granted. Others were denied, famously including heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali, who was stripped of his title and kept from boxing for almost four years and threatened with imprisonment. While his case was being appealed, he went on a speaking tour to defend his objection to the war after becoming a Muslim and shedding his given name of Cassius Clay. It has been said that I have two alternatives, either go to jail or go to the army. 
But I would like to say that there is another alternative. And that alternative, that alternative is justice. And, and if justice prevails, I will neither go to the army nor will I go to jail. When Muhammad Ali was drafted, he was livid, and he was angry, and he was screaming and yelling, why me, why me? Maria Santelli is the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, an organization that began in 1940 and today offers assistance to people like serviceman Dante Searcy, whom we heard from earlier in preparing their conscientious objection cases that go before Pentagon panels for review. Maria Santelli sees Muhammad Ali's story as important still today. He refused to go. He applied for conscientious objector status. He was denied. He refused to to be inducted into the Army, and he was convicted. And he took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, where it was eventually overturned three and a half years later. And in that process of that three and a half years, you can observe Muhammad Ali from being very self-centered and very concerned about his own self. Why me? Why me? When he got the draft call to the statement he made when it became public that the Supreme Court overturned his conviction. And he said, all I can speak about is my own case. I don't know who's being assassinated tonight, who's being deprived of some justice tonight, who's being deprived of some equality tonight. By taking that step and acknowledging and reclaiming his conscience, it began to spread, and that act of nonviolent compassion permeated his entire life. And it was no longer just about him. It was about others who might be experiencing injustice or some other uh, inequality. Maria, many listening will wonder how there can be cases of conscientious objection in countries like the U.S., which hasn't had a draft since 1973. In general, how prevalent have conscientious objector cases been in the U.S. in the more recent era of an all-volunteer army that we have? Well, every year there are hundreds of cases of conscientious objectors, uh, folks who have voluntarily joined the military and then in the course of their service have a crisis of conscience because of something that they've seen, something that's immediately right in front of them or something they've experienced, whether in combat or in the military culture in general. They have a crisis of conscience and they realize that they can no longer uh, be part of the armed forces. And there's a process by which they can legally apply for discharge as as conscientious objectors. So that essentially would answer people's questions about, um, hey, it was volunteer service, didn't they know what they were getting into? Well, you know, our culture, the major institutions, the major pillars of our culture go to great pains to hide the real consequences of not just combat, not just the effects of war, but actually the effects of military culture in general and the act of training to kill. Not just killing, but the act of training to kill. It is something that is so contrary to our human nature, to the way we're wired, that um, folks who join the military voluntarily haven't really had the benefit of an honest and open discussion in our culture of what that means. So when they get into the military culture, from from basic training, from boot camp alone, that training, that, that extensive and scientific training that is meant to expressly circumvent the human conscience can be enough to tell someone that, no, my participation in this system is wrong. Why do you feel, Maria, this work is important? I feel that in the greater movement, 
for a more peaceful and just world. We can learn so much from our conscientious objectors in the military. These are folks, by and large, these folks joined the military to do something good. You know, we look at the military in our culture almost as as a religion. You know, um, it, it is called the service, capital T, capital S. So people go into the military to do something greater than themselves for all the reasons that we feel are, are you know, very, very cynical or self-serving reasons that we might kind of toss around that people join the military, you know, college money, see the world, uh, health insurance, all those types of things, economic uh, and, and more... Um, individually driven motives, it is still, in the end, a very altruistic uh, act that most of these folks are making. And so they're, they're coming in here to do good. And then when they see the dehumanization that must take place in order for war and war making to be possible, it changes something in them. It inspires that one proactive step of that nonviolent compassion, that act of nonviolent compassion, that act of reclaiming your conscience. And then we see that that then filters through the rest of, of the person's life, whether it is, whether the first step is they realize that war is wrong and their participation in war is wrong, or maybe something else has happened. Maybe they have experienced something in the military that felt dehumanizing to them personally, or maybe they saw in a, in a country where they were stationed, something happened to an individual there. It doesn't have to be an act of combat or an act of war. Some of our clients became vegetarian in the military, and that act of nonviolent compassion toward animals then began to filter through the rest of their lives, and they realized that war is wrong. So what we see in our clients, in each individual conscientious objector, is this study in nonviolence, how taking that one proactive step to reclaim your conscience and be true to your conscience, follow your conscience, it then is what governs the rest of your path. Maria Santelli, executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, who helped Navy linguist Dante Circe prepare his application for conscientious objector status in 2012. More of Circe's story now in his interview with Peace Talks Radio's Carol Boss. There was one incident in particular that I would say was the genesis of my shift, my shift in perspective about war and my personal feelings about it. It was when I began participating in uh, weekly group counseling sessions with the alcohol treatment program on our base. Um, It was a decision I made for myself personally to refer myself to these weekly counseling sessions just because of my own issues with substance abuse. But what ended up happening was when I began to attend the counseling sessions, I was around combat personnel for the first time. Up until that point, my experience in the military had only been interacting with the intelligence community. And so I had never really been around people that had actually been boots on in, you know, boots on ground combat before. But being a part of these counseling sessions and seeing people struggling with substance abuse and hearing the reasons why they were struggling with it really opened my eyes because I saw that a lot of what they were dealing with emotionally, their struggle was because of the guilt that they felt for their participation in killings that may that they began to question after they were out of that war arena. So these were these were mostly in your group it sounds like veterans of what Iraq, Iraq, Afghanistan, um other, you know, other places that they, you know, that they had been deployed to. I'm wondering if you remember um one particular story that really really hit you? 
Well, I remember a particular story of a soldier who said this phrase that I had never heard before, that he would shoot first and ask questions later. At that point that we were in the group counseling session, he talked about how guilty he felt about that. And that was a lot of the reason for his substance abuse. And it just struck me in a really interesting way because before I had never considered the ramifications of war on the actual participant. I only thought of collateral damage for the people that we were fighting. And I thought that there was a justification for that collateral damage. How did you justify collateral damage in your own mind? I didn't think about it, to be quite honest. I understood that it was a part of war. I suppose, well, I suppose I did justify it by just saying that it was just a necessary evil. But I didn't really question it until much later. But I saw that these men, you know, we were in arms together, wearing the same uniforms. I saw that these men were still struggling with their guilt, you know, three, four, five years later, still struggling with substance abuse, and it was affecting all areas of their lives. Well, it sounds like what you saw around the room in that program may have left you thinking, if I continue in the service, I'm more likely to struggle with substance abuse than not. Absolutely. <laughs> that's that's really good insight and that's absolutely that's absolutely true i saw that those men had gone and they had fought and they did what they were supposed to do they fulfilled their mission and and they and they came back with with issues with really really deep rooted issues of guilt and fear and I my my heart went out to them while at the same time realizing that I was wearing the same uniform essentially and that there wasn't that much keeping me away from from what they had experienced. So this was sort of the beginning of you starting to um without meaning to put words in your mouth was it the beginning of 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 questioning? Yes, it was the beginning of questioning for me because up until that point I felt as though my job was one in which I would be behind the scenes and I was not directly participating in war. I was doing my job and my job was somehow separate from them or people that were in combat. But being in this group and being neutralized by substance abuse and, and our need to heal from that showed me that we were all participating in the same system in the same machine, just on different ends. It connected me to them in a way that I hadn't really been connected to actual participants in war before. We'll hear more about former Navy linguist Dante Circe's path to conscientious objector status, and later the story of a woman who realized her philosophy of life couldn't allow her to stay in the Army. When we continue on this topic here on Peace Talks Radio, right after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online with all of our episodes going all the way back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls along with Carol Boss, and today we're looking at conscientious objection to military service in the United States in the 21st century, in this era of an all-volunteer army. It may come as a surprise to some that each year hundreds of people, having enlisted into the armed services, experience a crisis of conscience and make their case to end their duty earlier. We're delving into a couple of stories today. Now more of Carol Boss's interview with former Navy linguist Dante Cersei, who started in the Navy in 2008 at the age of 26 and applied for CO status in 2012. He was granted conscientious objector status and left the service in 2013. I know that another experience that shaped your feeling and your views about war was your encounter with racism in the Navy. So if you would share with us as one of the very few African Americans in your company what it was like for you. It was a very difficult experience for me, and it was a significant paradigm shift in my life, one that continues to have an impact on me today. Um, I'm grateful for it today, and I'm glad that it happened because I think it's necessary to see things as they are and not as we would like them to be. The real impact that it had on me, though, during that time was feeling dehumanized in in, in a way. I felt as though people did not see me as a person, that they only saw my ethnicity. And what began to really shape my current feelings about war was when I watched the Hearts and Minds documentary, um, the documentary that was about the Vietnam War. And I saw other people of color, uh, Mexican people, uh, Native American people, speak about racism and the necessity for racism in order to be able to kill the Vietnamese people. Once I began to see that there were some similarities, then it really made me want to separate myself from any sort of activity that would perpetuate the dehumanization of other people solely based on ethnicity or skin color. Let's back up a little bit. How did the racism manifest for you? When did it all begin? When did you notice it? I didn't really notice it at the beginning of my time in the military. The environment that I, that I was raised in, uh, Sacramento, California, was a very it was a very diverse environment, and it was never really a part of my consciousness. Um, when I joined the military, it was sort of regular daily conversation, you know, racial jokes, racial slurs, and it was just sort of the the culture that that I kind of walked into, and so it was a Definitely a culture shock for me, but it was something that I tried to get used to because I thought that that was just part of being, you know, being in the military and interacting with your with your comrades. So it was a lot of joking around on their part. A lot of joking around, lots of back and forth, not not only to me, but also towards, you know, whatever mission the the people may may have been working you know whether it was towards middle eastern people or you know what or what not it would kind of extend to to those people as well after about 3 years then it kind of came to a point where i just wasn't really able to take it anymore and i ended up speaking up i ended up submitting paperwork to my chain of command letting them know what was going on 
you know, thankfully they handled the situation well, but it still left me sort of disillusioned with my comrades and with my job and really left me with a sour taste. So you kind of reached the boiling point? Yeah, I reached um, I reached a boiling point one night um, at at uh, at a party, actually, with uh, with some of my shipmates in which there were there were lots of jokes and just lots of lots of things being said that I didn't that I didn't appreciate. You read a lot of books, too, didn't you? I know that you had read Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Is that how you felt? Invisible? Yes. Feeling invisible, feeling like people didn't think that I felt emotions, that I didn't hurt and that I didn't have dreams and, and, you know, wanting to maintain my dignity and serve my country proud. You know, I felt like people didn't see me that way. They only saw um, my ethnicity and the stereotypes associated with with that. Was there a point then that you actually saw yourself connecting the dots, seeing the connection between racism such as you experienced and war? Yes, I um during this time along with African American literature I I read a lot of that. Um I also connected very deeply with Howard Zinn. I love the way that he spoke about his own experience as a World War II bombardier. And it was through Howard Zinn that I learned the term cognitive dissonance. He talks about his experience in World War II as a bombardier where he says, you know, he's 5 miles above his target. And he's not paying attention to where the bombs go. He's just doing his job, which is to fly and just drop the bombs. And it wasn't until later that he began to really analyze it and question it. And so that was what happened with me when I saw his metamorphosis, if you will, of uh, his shift in consciousness. I began to have a shift in consciousness as well. He, uh, he says a quote that I really, that I really took to heart. He says... Once you've convinced yourself that they are the enemy, then you can commit whatever atrocities you need to for the purpose of completing your mission. And I saw that that was the situation that I was in. Um, I had convinced myself that they were the enemy and I was just fulfilling my mission without really analyzing what I was doing. I asked you, Dante, a a little while ago about if... The actual process of applying for CO status solidified your beliefs. And in reading your essay, you you talk about your beliefs at the very, very beginning. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the evolution of it. I mean, you mentioned that you were a devout Christian when you joined the Navy. So you want to talk about the evolution of from that place before joining to where you're at now? Well, it's it's very interesting because uh, yes, I was a devout Christian before I enlisted in the military. Um, the good thing about the military, and and one thing that I that I benefited from in joining the military was the fact that I was around lots of different types of people from all over from all over the country. So part of my own personal development, and this is something positive that I take away from my experience, was the fact that I was exposed to other faiths and other beliefs. And that was, I would say at the, at the very beginning. And that was just a personal thing um, that I began to kind of question my, my faith and really allow myself to be open to other faiths. 
once I began to read more about about Eastern religions and more about about humanism, um, I began to see that yes, the Bible the Bible does promote nationalism. The Bible does promote this notion of a chosen people, and I saw people in my in in people that I worked with really adopt that and really hang on to that hard this whole notion of chosen people and i think that us as americans we do believe in lots of ways that we are superior to people of other countries and it really created a dissonance if you will with my belief in humanism that we're all equal we're all human and that nobody is superior to anybody else and you know nobody has the right to kill another person simply out of you know no matter what the motivation is whether it be nationalism or or whatnot and so that that was definitely something that I went through at the beginning of my of my enlistment and it was very um, instrumental as well in my beliefs today there's a really good quote um, from John F Kennedy that I think would be really good he says war will continue to exist until that distant day when the conscientious objector enjoys the same reputation and prestige that a warrior does today. What does that quote mean to you? Well, that quote means to me that what I have done going through this process, standing up for what I, for what I believed in, putting forth the action to cease doing something that I felt was in conflict with my conscience, that that should have the same respect as a war hero because it required courage not the courage that i was be- that i was being shot at or you know not not the courage that that war that war requires but it was it required courage in order for me to go against the the united states navy and to have lots of people tell me that i was wrong and have lots of people tell me that i you know that i was not I was not doing a good thing. It was not an honorable thing for me to end my contract early and for me not to fulfill my obligation that I signed up for. But I love the fact that President Kennedy believes that the conscientious objector should have that same prestige. And I don't I don't do any of this. I didn't do any of this for prestige, but it really makes me feel good that a respected president realized that some people would have a moral conflict with war and that those people that believe so strongly in not killing other people that that should be respected as well as people who risk their lives to further their mission or, you know, for what they believe in as well. Dante Searcy granted conscientious objector status, prematurely ending his stint as a U.S. Navy linguist in 2013. In 2012, Searcy contacted the Center on Conscience and War, which since 1940 has been assisting CO applicants and advocating for respect for the conscientious objector. Maria Santelli is the organization's executive director, here again talking with Carol Boss. So we try to look at the application for for each applicant. We try to look at it the way the military is going to look at it. We want to see that they have, act because the burden is on them. The, being it is a voluntary military now and we don't have a draft, Folks who enlist, when they sign their enlistment papers, they check a box. They literally check a box that says, I am not a conscientious objector. And so when they make their application to be discharged as a conscientious objector, they have to prove that something in them is different. Something in them has changed. That they thought war was okay, or they thought there was a, their participation in war was okay, or 
most of these folks obviously think war is a necessary evil, the way we've all been conditioned to believe in our culture. War is a necessary evil, and I would participate if called to. And then they have to explain what their process was, how their beliefs began to change, and then the moment at which they knew military service was not something that they could participate in any longer in good conscience. So we help them make sure they're meeting their burden. We we help them to bring their words um, into life in this application and really tell their story. It's very interesting that um, conscientious objection is a threat to the military. Of course it is a threat to the military because if the training, if the scientific scientifically developed extensive precise training that hasn't been developed over the years to circumvent the conscience if that training um, begins to if holes begin to get poked in that training if if people uh, if if a conversation begins to be had in a unit at the unit level in in the military communities that people are doubting that people are questioning war that's a very dangerous a thing for military discipline and order if people begin to allow the conscience back in. The, the training has been developed expressly to keep the conscience out, and if the conscience is allowed back in, that's a very threatening thing to the military order because the military knows that the conscience must be distanced in order for, for a, a, a human being to kill. So the military doesn't like conscientious objection, and they like to... to um, shuffle it out as easily as possible. If there are other ways to get rid of a conscientious objector, they're going to try to do that first. But it's also a decision that is not allowed to be made at the command level. This is such a powerful decision that the decision to discharge someone as a conscientious objector goes all the way up to the headquarters of that particular branch of the military. It comes here to Washington, D.C., whether you're stationed in California or Georgia or Washington State, your application for conscientious objection goes to the headquarters of that particular branch of the military that you're in. All other discharge decisions are made at the command level. Conscientious objection is made at the level of the Pentagon. Who are on these panels? There are review boards who look at these panels, and generally they're, they're pretty professional and we're pretty happy with the review boards. There's a process, uh, an investigation that happens um, at the, at the particular service member's unit level, an officer is appointed to investigate the case and to seek evidence and, and compile a case file. But at the unit level, there's only, or even at the base level, there's only a recommendation made. And then it goes up to the CO, the Conscientious Objection Review Board, where, um, where, the, where higher level um, military officers are making this decision, reviewing the evidence and making the decision. Maria, what are the percentages that get conscientious objector status? If people work with us, we uh, we have pretty darn near 100% uh, success rate uh, because we understand the law. Our organization has been around since 1940. We helped write the original draft law, which is what conscientious objection today is still based on. Military policy on CO is still based on the old draft law that allowed for COs in 1940. So we know the law, and we we are very we're very good at what we do, and we enjoy what we do very much. So if people work with us, their success rate is very high. The GAO did a study in 2007 
And their numbers, looking across the branches of the military, showed that about 57% of people who applied for conscientious objector status were actually discharged as such. Now, we analyzed those numbers, and we feel like those numbers are clearly, clearly problematic because... As I mentioned earlier, someone may start a conscientious objector application, but their command will look for other ways to get them out first so that their the discussion, the moral discussion against war, the, the moral debate about, the, uh, about war, the morality of war does not actually go anywhere, does not take place. So they might try and get that person out. The process is lengthy. It can take anywhere from five months to about a year depending on how quickly your command moves on the application or, you know, the evidence you want to bring forth, all those different factors go in. So sometimes people simply time out and are discharged for that reason, their contract expires, things like that. So we believe that that number is is quite low and and folks that we work with have a much, much greater chance of getting out. Do you ever turn an applicant down saying, no, your case is too weak or it's not convincing enough? It's not that we would turn someone down, but we have had people who, uh, for whom their conscience really has not crystallized yet. And that could be, you know, that takes shape in a number of ways. It's happened to me a few times where somebody calls and says, you know, um, I want to do this. I think I'm a conscientious objector, but I'd like to wait uh, until, you know, maybe the military, um, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm on a deployment and I want to wait until I get home. And the military is very clear. The regulations are very clear. Do not doubt someone's sincerity because they've applied for conscientious objector discharge in haste. But you, you can doubt someone's sincerity if they've dragged their feet. Again, we all know what a transgression against the conscience feels like. And if, you, if you're really compelled by conscience to act, if that is really a controlling force in your life, you will act. You will not hesitate. But if you hesitate, that is more of a reason to doubt your sincerity. Obviously, your conscience is not the controlling force in your life. So I've had occasion where I've talked to people and said, you know, I'm not really sure you've crystallized yet. And they, uh, you know, the couple of times that this has happened, they've said, no, I think you're right. I need to, you know, I need to maybe see where this is going to go. Critics of the pursuit of conscientious objector status might say, well, who defends the country then against those who are able to kill innocents? What do you say about the legitimate needs of a military? Are there any? We'll hear the answer to that question from Maria Santelli, executive director of the Center on Conscience and War and Dante Circe, the conscientious objector we talked with earlier, and another conscientious objector whose basis for her CO application was her devotion to vegetarianism and veganism. All in Peace Talks Radio continues after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all of our episodes going back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss, and we're exploring cases of conscientious objectors in this era of the all-volunteer U.S. Army on today's show. I should note that we placed three calls over the course of a week to the Public Affairs Office at the Pentagon to get the Defense Department take on the conscientious objector discussion, but no one returned our calls. If they do, we'll get their response in a future program. Before the break, we heard our Carol Boss pose the question if there are legitimate needs for a military to our guests. Here's Maria Santelli's response. She's executive director of the Washington, D.C.-based Center on Conscience and War. Anyone, I think most of us, and there's a question in the conscientious objection, objection application that says, what do you believe is an acceptable use of force? And most of our objectors will absolutely say, personal defense, defense of my family, I myself... If I was being attacked, I would have to be honest, I would fight back. If I saw a loved one being attacked, I would use physical force to stop that. But that is finite. It is related to an immediate cause, and it is an, an act that you can see clearly that it has you know, a moral explanation. It makes sense morally. But war, a nation state against another, um, is, is, is unlimited in its, its scope and its, its ability to kill uh, civilians, and that we just can't, the conscience cannot uh, rectify and find a moral justification for. So what about the need of a military? Well, our conscientious objectors and our organization's focus is not to decide foreign policy. So these are complex and debatable questions. What is not complex and debatable is what someone believes and what someone's conscience tells them is right or wrong. So that is where we put our focus. But additionally, this uh, this is what I'd like to, to, to share with people that we're learning from our conscientious objectors, that we're learning from these case studies of the military. And, uh, and that is that humanity is predisposed to peace. If you believe one way, there's, there's basically two ways we can look at humanity. We can look at humanity as predisposed to war, or we can look at humanity as predisposed to peace. If we look at humanity as predisposed to war, then we're going to choose to arm ourselves to the teeth, whether that's personally, with your own personal firearms, or as a country with a, a, an incredibly uh, bloated military. Um, so if you look at humanity as predisposed to peace, then you begin to look at creative ways to solve conflict, ways of bringing in nonviolent conflict resolution. There are, there are conversations beginning in the just war churches that are looking at, is it possible for a just war in, in, in modern warfare in today's day and age? And what we have seen with just war in the last 1,700 years, it's like saying, um, you know, you have war in your toolbox only as a last resort, but if it's in your toolbox, in your toolbox, it's getting used. And when we focus on, on, uh, on, on using violent force to solve conflicts, it takes resources away. It takes energy away. It's actually a, 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 a self-perpetuating cycle. So we actually fail to look at creative nonviolent solutions when we know that war is an option. Carol asked Dante Cersei, the conscientious objector we heard from earlier, who would serve if everyone was a CEO like him? And what the need for a military really is. That is that's a tough question to answer. Only because I am really careful about not projecting what I believe 
onto onto other people. Um, I have lots of friends that that are still in the military that still serve, and they don't have a moral conflict with it. And I respect them for being able to being able to continue with it. Um, I also think that there are some parts of our society that need to be fixed. And unfortunately, those aspects of, of our society encourage people to join the military. It, for myself in particular, it was, it was student loan debt. And so I think until a lot of those issues are resolved, I think that people are always going to see the military as an option, not necessarily because they want to fight, but because of other things that the military provides, which are good, but in exchange for receiving those those financial benefits or whatnot, then it puts you in a position where you have to, you know, you have to kill people. Fanny, do you think there are legitimate needs for a military? I don't think so. I mean, violence against violence just creates more violence. That's Carol talking to Fanny Garcia, who joined the Army in 2010 at the age of 19, hoping to become an Army photographer, but was instead an 88M, a motor transport operator working in support of combat operations. Her 2012 application for conscientious objector status, finally granted in 2013, was based on her stance as a vegan. More on that in a minute, but first to her answer to the question of the need for maintaining a military. So therefore, I, I don't think we need a military like the U.S., how, you know, we have a base in, all, in almost every country, so you think um, the military there should be no military at all? What do, what do you think about security of of the country? I'm not really sure how to go about that because people the people are going to feel like they need to be protected, and you know when you're fighting that kind of power and, and that kind of large scale, I, I feel. That no matter what, some people are always going to turn to violence, and it's something you you can't really control because you'll, you're always going to have both sides. You're always going to have the peace organizations and the people that want to fight. Also, what about humanitarian missions? Often, uh, soldiers are sent to um, other countries, and sometimes in this country as well, to to do that. I think that's excellent. I, I think there should be more of that and instead of, you know, sending people to maintain, um, I guess, the, the power in other countries, I feel like we should have more humanitarian. And I feel like the military isn't, doesn't reflect that as much. You know, watching commercials, you just see people jumping off of planes and, you know, running around. And it looks like it's really awesome when, you know, it's very... <laughs> Um, hard work and takes a lot of energy to do all that kind of stuff. Coming out of high school, that what Fanny Garcia called awesome view of military action from recruiting advertisements was all she understood military service to be about. No one in her family had ever served in the military. Her parents were from El Salvador, but she was brought up in California. Fanny was a vegetarian when she enlisted, went full vegan while in the service, which wound up being the centerpiece for her application for conscientious objector status. Well, for me, it was it was a gradual um, a gradual change, um, you know, coming from basic training and, and and learning how to you know use violence against others. When I became vegan, that's when I started putting the two together. Where 
me being vegan no longer coexisted with me being in the military. So I had I was suppressing a lot of feelings, which made me very depressed because I knew I I had no other choice but to continue working for the military. When it really hit me was when my command had told our company that we were going to be going to Afghanistan really soon. That was in 2013. So what were you feeling when you were told that? Because that's absolutely what you didn't want to happen. Well, I started uh, going to a counselor because I was, at that point, I was really depressed and I didn't know what to do. But in return, the counselor was just trying to, to help me get through it and basically telling me that I had no other choice. And so that's when I started doing my research. Um, I, I went online and I started, um, you know, asking Google what I could do to to get out or if there, there was even a way to get out. And that's when I came across a conscientious objector. So you had never heard of a conscientious objector before? I had never heard, no. So at that point, after becoming a vegetarian, it sounds like that, a vegan specifically, that that was um, a very important milestone in your life and that it started um, impacting, is it true, impacting the way you thought about things, about war, about violence? Yes, it, it, it did because if, if I wasn't consuming any animals because I didn't want, I, did, I wasn't supporting how they were being treated, then why would I support violence against others? And so I became more spiritual. I, I started meditating and I started having, I guess, a realization that, that what I was doing in the military wasn't right, that I needed to find a way out. Was the getting out of the army a question of your belief systems changing? Was there some fear involved? And the reason I'm asking because, you know, maybe listeners who are who hear this who say she should have known what she was getting into. Okay. I think it was my age when I, when I joined, I was very naive. Um, I wasn't thinking about the bigger picture until I was in... And I saw, you know, how we were trained and, and what we were going to do as far as going overseas. Even though I, I had a non-combatant job, I was still, you know, going to put myself in danger because we, when we're overseas, we do have to carry weapons in order to defend ourselves. So I knew that the possibility was, was very high. And it wasn't until, you know, I went through the military that... I grew and and I started having all these realizations that this is this wasn't the this is this wasn't what I wanted to do that this wasn't right. You read about conscientious objection and what did you read that that got your attention? Um, well, I read that it was basically based off of religious beliefs or your own personal beliefs, and because I wasn't religious. Um, I kind of fell under, you know, what I believed in, and, and, and that's someone who's against all forms of war. I found an organization that was able to help me win my case. I'm going to go back up a little bit before we just talked about this. You said it wasn't 
right. You were talking to a counselor and you said it wasn't right. It wasn't right for me. Can you talk about what you meant by that? I guess it, again, it went against my beliefs against harming any anyone or any living thing, which is pretty much required for you to train and to to be able to fulfill, you know, if those orders came down. Why do you think you were granted the conscientious objector status? I feel that I had a very strong case um, regarding my beliefs, and I had a lot of support. Um, like I said, my, the witnesses that were in the room with the investigating officer um, helped me out a lot. I had um, letters from my friends and, and family to support me as well. And at the time, I believe the military was trying to um, weed out people that no longer wanted to be in there. So that also helped me out a lot. In other words, we don't need people who really have no interest at all. Exactly. Like pe people who are injured or, or people who are just uh, malingering. I'm wondering upon leaving the army, how these feelings, a lot of them stemming from you becoming a vegan, has transferred into your life? As far as right now? Uh, or? Yeah, in terms of how you live your life now and your beliefs. Well, I'm actually um, working with an organization. Um, it's called Military Speak Out, and they're... Um, I guess main goal is to try to raise awareness in, in today's youth and, and try to convince people that they shouldn't join the military. And, and that's basically what I want to do now as far as um, being active and, you know, supporting peace. So what do you do for that organization, Speak Out? What we do is we, we table at... Um, events. Um, we go to um, the local high schools and we pass out brochures and, and they have me to to basically um, explain to them, you know, what my experience was when I was in the army. Oh, so you are getting an opportunity to share those experiences. Yes. So what do you think the impact has been from what you've seen so far on younger people? I believe that it's given given them the other side of the story, you know, versus what they see on television, you know, like like I did when I was 19. I didn't have anybody telling me the other side of the story. So are you feeling uh, that there's um, a real significance to your being a conscientious objector and the, the role that plays in the world? Yes. Former Army Transport Operator Fanny Garcia, who was granted conscientious objector status in 2013. Again now, more from Carol Boss's interview with Maria Santelli, director of the Center on Conscience and War. World War II vets might be the first to say that it was the good war that required service by many. Have you had the opportunity to have conversations with some of them about your work? Um, well... Sure. And, and of course, there are people who will, you know, continue to defend all wars as having meaning and, and, and necessity. Um, and again, this is where it is, is very complex, because um, a lot of the conscientious objectors in World War One, I, I mean, in World War Two, excuse me, were Quakers, and they were doing acts of nonviolent resistance against Hitler for years before the United States intervened. So one has to, to know what their 
what their conscience is guiding them to do and what their limits are and whether that is opposition to all war, opposition to a particular war, that's a personal decision. But that is that is clear. That is not complex and that is not debatable. What is debatable is how we remember history, how we decide foreign policy. Because, you know, the conscientious objectors from World War II would say that, no, this, this wasn't a good war. This was a preventable war and this was a war that had hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of civilian casualties, you know, the use of the nuclear bomb twice. So there are many, many reasons to question whether or not this was a good war um, based on your particular perspective. Um, but, the fact, but the fact that people did not choose to fight in war and, and chose to do nonviolent alternative service or chose to resist altogether did not mean that they supported the, the political uh, you know, objectives or, or the political motivations that were going on in, in Europe or Asia at the time. And many of these folks who chose not to fight worked in other ways uh, to, bring, to bring justice and peace uh, to the people of Europe. Maria Santelli, director of the Center on Conscience and War. For longer interviews with all of the guests on today's program, as well as useful links on the topic of conscientious objectors, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this program again and all of the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. There you can also sign up for a free podcast and free newsletter, order CDs, and help support the series with a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit organization that produces this program, separate and apart from your public radio station. Visit peacetalksradio.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. That helps the effort as well. In addition to support from listeners like you, we receive support from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. For Carol Boss, thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.